First of all, we're still taking pictures. This will be the last Sunday to take pictures for our photo directory. The purpose for the directory is so people can know who other people are. Just by having a picture and a name, then we can remember. It gets embarrassing sometimes when you say, now I've talked to you 15 times. I still can't remember your name. So that's just a little memory aid for everybody. Also, if you're a live streamer, you can send in a picture if you would like. Next Saturday is looks like it's going to be another great weather day. Last year we got rained out, so it's been two years since we had our church picnic. The church picnic, we have I think we have information out there as to the directions and how to get out to uh, Orlando Salas' place. He's out in Pattison, Texas, which is you just go out I-10 to Brookshire, turn, get off of Brookshire, and go north on uh, on that main road there like you're going to go to Orlando's Pizza, except you just keep going past it. Stay on that road all the way out to Pattison. We'll have balloons and markers and everything out there. But we play a variety of games for families. We also have he's got a volleyball court out there and a um, uh, pickleball court. So if you don't know what pickleball is, you can find out. It's a good game for all ages. It's badminton with a wiffle ball. And this is a huge, huge thing now. And so we have all these kinds of activities, and it's just a great time for us as a church to spend time together, to have some wonderful food, and to enjoy fellowship and some activities and just uh, get to know each other a little better. So that'll be next Saturday. Next Sunday night, we have a special guest speaker. We have events two or three times every year where we invite a special guest speaker related to the Middle East who can give us insights into things related to Israel. And our speaker next Sunday night is going to be uh, Michael Makovsky, who's the CEO and president of GENSA, which is the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs. And he will be updating us on all the things that are going on in the Middle East. So if you want to learn uh, some good insights as to what's actually happening uh, in the Middle East with all of the things since the war with Hamas, between Hamas and Israel this last summer, the role of ISIS in the Middle East and how that threatens Israel and how all of these things impact United States national security, then he will be addressing that. That will be on Sunday night. Invite your friends. We've invited and we'll have a good response from a lot of folks in the Jewish community as well. So this is a great opportunity for us to just uh, provide something that has benefit for the community. Also, Two weeks from today, on October 26th, the, uh, there will be an event for the, for, uh, Israel bonds to explain Israel bonds as, as an investment. And so this is an, a, a banquet, uh, for that. But the speaker is an IDF Sergeant Benjamin Anthony, who is a combat veteran and reservist with the IDF. And so he will be speaking and ta- telling us about his uh, uh, background and some of his experiences in the IDF in Israel, so you may not want to miss that. And then today is uh, Communion Sunday. We have the Lord's Table, the second Sunday of every month. Next month, we will have it on the first Sunday of November, a little change in plans, because I will be departing on November the 3rd to go to Israel. So we're going to move it up and have the Lord's Table on November the 2nd. Scripture teaches that whenever we worship, and worship is an act of submission of our will to God's will, it's an act of obedience to him, a focus upon him, and whenever we worship, it is to, in order for it to have value, spiritual value, we must be in right relationship with God. Scripture uses different terms to describe this, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, a fellowship, these are all terms related to the fact that in the church age, the the empowerment for the Christian life is through God the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Jesus Christ was referring to when he spoke to the woman at the well and said, a time will come when we worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. So when we sin, we stop walking by the Spirit. We begin to walk according to the sin nature. Scripture says the only way to recover is to uh, admit or acknowledge our sins to God. We confess our sins in silent prayer, 
and immediately we are forgiven of those sins and cleansed from all other sins, all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful that we have this opportunity to come together to uh, bring this congregation before you, before your throne of grace and prayer. We're thankful for the fact that we have immediate access to you because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying that now we have direct access to you. No longer uh, are we kept uh, apart because of sin, but that has been paid for completely on the cross, and now we have direct access to your throne of grace instead of going through a priesthood. Father, we pray for us today as a congregation that we might focus our attention upon you and upon your word, that this will be a time that is spiritually profitable for us, that we might be encouraged and challenged and strengthened to push forward in our spiritual life, making your word the highest priority in our life. Father, we continue to pray for our missionaries, for Igor Smolyar, for Jim Myers, for the situation in Ukraine, and we pray for their ministry, that it might be effective and they might take advantage of many opportunities coming their way now to to witness and to teach the word. We continue to pray for Brett Nasworth with DM2 and for his recovery. We pray for uh, Jeff Phipps and for a couple of others that will be going with uh, Jim Myers down to uh, Brazil in a couple of weeks, and we pray that they might be well prepared for that endeavor. And we pray for those in this congregation who are fighting diseases and illnesses that may have kept them away, and we pray for their recovery. We pray for others who are traveling and pray that they might be kept safe on the road. And now, Father, we just continue to pray for this nation, for our freedom, that we might continue to have freedom, to have peace, to proclaim the gospel and teach the truth of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for our uh, opening hymn, number 175, Hallelujah, What a Savior. Number 175, please stand. As I pointed out earlier, we come together on the second Sunday of every month in order to celebrate the Lord's table. I frequently use the word celebrate because that is a good term to use to describe at least one aspect of worship. Worship is a celebration of God's love for us. It's a celebration of God's grace in our lives. It's a celebration that we have complete, as the hymn we just sang put it, full atonement, that Jesus Christ fully and completely paid the price for our sins on the cross. I first learned that hymn in the uh, probably when I was a teenager, and I always thought it was a, an important hymn because the words are so doctrinally accurate, an emphasis on the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that he died in our place. And because he died in our place, our sins are fully paid for. That's the picture that is presented when we come to the Lord's table. The Lord's table was instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ the night before he went to the cross. It had a historical background, though. That background went back to the time of the Exodus when at the tenth plague, God was going to take the life of the firstborn of every family in Egypt unless the Egyptians released the Israelites from their bondage, from slavery. And because they had, the Pharaoh had already hardened his heart and refused to release them through the previous nine plagues, this was the harshest of the nine plagues and would bring about the greatest amount of loss and grief in Egypt. The Israelites were sequestered in an area that had been given to them as a place to make their homeland by the Pharaoh whom Joseph served in the land of Goshen. And According to tradition among the Jews, not a single Jewish life was lost. And that's not stated in the scripture, but I think that is probably an accurate reflection because the Jews were obedient to God in putting blood on the doorpost. 
They were given various uh, commandments, things they were to follow. The family was supposed to come together. They were to eat standing up. They were to take a lamb that they had evaluated and that they had made sure was without spot or blemish, and they were to sacrifice it, uh, apply the blood to the doorposts and the lintel, that's the cross piece at the top of the door, as a sign that that house was covered by the blood. And that was a picture of what would eventually be the death of Christ and the payment of Christ for sin. So that symbolism of blood is a symbolism of death. It's not the literal blood that has significance. It is what it symbolizes, which is a violent death, a penal death, a death that was a punishment. And so that is the depiction in those sacrifices. And it's substitutionary that because that lamb had died, that lamb, that death was in the place of or as a substitute for the firstborn in every house where the blood was was on the door. They were also to eat bread that was unleavened. Now, at the time, the reasoning that was given in, at the time of Exodus was because they, they were going to be released from their slavery that night. They didn't have time to go through the process of letting the, the dough rise and so it would be unleavened. But later we understand that there's a reason for that that is spiritually significant, that leaven was a picture of sin. It is used throughout the Scripture as a picture for sin and the pervasiveness of sin. And so when, when Jesus came to the Lord's table and he begins to uh, change uh, what's been going on at the Passover, taking two elements out of the Uh, out of the Passover meal, the Seder meal, and assigning them new meaning, he first took the bread, uh, the unleavened bread that they they had that was uh, called matzah, and he took the matzah and he broke it, which was standard practice in a Seder meal. The, The host would break the bread, pass it out to everyone, but at that point Jesus said something that was unexpected and uh redefine the significance of that bread. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. And what he meant by that was not that there was a, that his body became literal bread, but that that bread was a metaphor, was a picture of his humanity. It was without sin. And because he was without sin, he was qualified to go to the cross. There are different images that are used in the in the Scripture to teach that. The fact that he was called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by John the Baptist is another way in which that was emphasized, that he was like the Lamb, he was without spot or blemish. When we go through the Gospels and when we're as we're studying Matthew on Sunday morning, when we get to that point where Jesus enters into Jerusalem, uh, on the Saturday or Sunday, depending on how you look at the time frame, uh, when he enters into Jerusalem, from that day until the time that he is arrested, he's evaluated. There's these dialogues, these these bitter debates between Jesus and the Pharisees. That is a depiction of the examination. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is being evaluated by the religious leaders, and of course they fail and he succeeds, and Jesus, and because he succeeds, it just intensifies their self-righteous indignation against him, and this intensifies their desire to have him killed. That is the lead-up. So the lamb represents his impeccability, his sinlessness. The bread, the unleavened bread, represents his impeccability, his sinlessness, so he's qualified to go to the cross. The cup represents his death. As I pointed out earlier, it's not the blood, but this imagery is pervasive through Scripture from Genesis chapter 9 in the covenant with Noah all the way through. You have this imagery of the shedding of blood, and it, it, it's, a, it's an idiom for a violent form of death. In the Noahic covenant, Noah is told that from that point forward, those who shed man's blood shall have their blood shed. And the shedding of man's blood is an idiom for a violent death, a death of murder, homicide. 
and the result of someone who commits homicide is that they should be executed under capital punishment. And so that terminology doesn't literally mean that they've bled to death, they've hemorrhaged or anything of that nature, but that they have been murdered. Uh, so when we get into the New Testament, we talk about the blood of Christ. That, too, is a metaphor for his death. Now, the death of Christ on the cross, he certainly died physically, but it was a spiritual death, a spiritual separation from God the Father between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when God the Father brought darkness on Golgotha, the hill where the cross was, and during those three hours, God the Father imputed or credited to Jesus our sin. First Corinthians 5.21 or Second Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin, Jesus, was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And so, again, there's an emphasis there in the substitutionary aspect of Christ's death on our behalf, but also the fact that in his death he fully and completely paid the penalty for sin. So in the course of the meal, when Jesus came to the third cup, there were four different cups, uh, toasts, that are taken during the course of a Seder meal. The third one was called the cup of redemption. And when he took the cup of redemption, he said, this is my blood which is given for you. So again, he's emphasizing substitutionary atonement and his death. So in these two elements, in the bread and in the cup, we have a picture of his person, sinless, qualified to die on the cross for our sins, and his death on the cross, his payment, complete payment for our sins. It's interesting that having drunk the third cup, Jesus then told his disciples at that meal that he would not drink of the vine, cup of the vine, until he came in his kingdom, which indicates that the Lord's table not only looks back for us at his death on the cross for our sins, but it also has an element where it's looking forward. It's anticipating the fact that there will come a time when he will return and he will establish his kingdom upon the earth, which is grounded in the fact that he has already paid the penalty for sins. And all of that kind of imagery and and doctrine is what we've been studying as we've been going through our Sunday morning study on, on Matthew. So that gives us an appreciation for what is going on in the in the ritual of the Lord's table. Now, the Lord's table is for anybody who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's commanded of everyone who is a believer to regularly observe the Lord's table. It doesn't say how often. Some uh, church traditions celebrate four times a year quarterly, some every week. We observe it once a month. It doesn't depend on whether or not you are a member or regular attender of this congregation. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome to observe the Lord's table with us this morning. So I'm going to ask Doug Carn if he would please come up and return thanks for the bread. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to come together to celebrate the Lord's table. As we've been studying the life of Christ from his virgin birth to the hypostatic union to his sinless perfection of his life, you remind us of the unique qualifications of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to go to the cross to be our substitute and to pay the penalty for sins for all man. Fathers, we take the bread. We pray that you will bless the bread to the glory and honor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. When Jesus took the matzah, he broke it, and he passed it out to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Morgan Franklin to please come up and return thanks for the cup. Father, as we continue this morning, we consider what was done for us by the shedding of this blood, our sacrifice that was made in lieu of us and that it marks our, our debt paid eternally and that we look forward to 
a future of joy with you because of the humility exhibited in this death that was given for us. And as we take this cup that represents this, we ask that we do it in the honor and glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. It's our custom to retain, I mean, to uh, take the cup. The cup represents the death of Christ on the cross. As Jesus came to that third cup, the cup of redemption, he said, this is my, uh, this is my blood which is shed for you, the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Having completed the Seder, the disciples sang a hymn first. They would sing from the Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, contained the Hallel Psalms. We sing from a hymn that is specifically written by Isaac Watts for the Lord's Table. When I survey the wondrous cross, number 185, we'll sing the third verse softly and crescendo on the fourth. Please stand. Scripture teaches that giving is very much a part of our worship. Giving for the New Testament church age is based upon grace. It is based upon our individual decision. As the Scripture says, as the Lord has prospered us, so let us give. Scripture teaches that giving is a response to the grace of God in our lives. It's also a recognition of our responsibility as individual believers to support the teaching of the local church as well as missionaries. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we're thankful for all the many ways in which you have blessed us and prospered us. Scripture says that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies and that you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, Father, we pray that you would bless these gifts as you continue to prosper this church and provide for our needs. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, we dismiss the kids to go back to their prep school classes. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time in God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance on our time of study. Our Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to come together as a body of believers to study your word, to reflect upon your grace, to understand the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ both in terms of the offer of the kingdom and in terms of providing eternal salvation for everyone on the planet. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truths that are being revealed in this passage and that we might come to understand and appreciate our Lord Jesus Christ even more. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. 
we are going to begin in verse 18. Now, we're in a significant section of Matthew. Just to remind you, and for those who are visitors, the Gospel of Matthew wasn't written in chronological order. It is broadly in chronological order. It starts with the birth of Christ. Then we have the beginning of his public ministry. Then we have his public ministry that is divided into two parts, the beginning section where he is offering himself as the king, and then there is the rejection by the official religious leadership in in Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and then there is his instruction to the disciples following that rejection that came at sort of near the two-third point, uh, two-thirds point in his in his public ministry, and then there's the crucifixion, uh, burial, and resurrection, and then his parting instruction to his disciples. So it's roughly chronological. But within those sections, Matthew is organizing his material according to his theme, his subject matter, his topic, to a point that he's trying to make, and that is that Jesus came to offer himself as the messianic son of David, the king of the Jews. And so he, as uh, a Jewish writer, references the Hebrew scriptures more than any of the other gospel writers because his point is to show that Jesus came to fulfill those messianic prophecies and promises. So his point is not to go through these events, these miracles that we've been studying in chapter 8 and chapter 9 in a chronological manner, but he's arranged them thematically in order to make certain points about Jesus, that these credentials establish his his right to be to present himself as the messiah and so we've looked at two sets of three miracles the healing miracles in chapter 8 from verse 1 down through verse uh, verse 17 after that there's this interlude where he talks about the demands of discipleship then we have a second set of three miracles, miracles of power demonstrating his sovereignty over creation as he stilled the storm, over the uh, demons as he casts out demons from those two demon-possessed men, and then his power to forgive as demonstrated by his healing of the paralyzed man in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, which we studied last time. Following chapter 8, there's another interlude where he calls Matthew as his disciple and where he deals with a couple of other questions and issues related to discipleship between verse 9 and verse 17. Now, as I stated several times before, I'm skipping those interludes related to discipleship because the way he structured this, it shows what an interesting writer Matthew is. He's making certain points about the power and authority of Jesus. And then he takes a break and he talks about what's expected of someone who is a disciple. Now, the term disciple is not a synonym for being a believer or being a Christian. Every person who is a disciple, uh, pretty much, there's a couple of exceptions in Scripture, but they're expected to be believers. But a believer may or may not take up the challenge to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who is committed to learning the doctrine of Scripture, to learning uh, what the Lord has taught us in the Word of God and implementing it in their life so that they can grow to spiritual maturity. The call for Christians is to be disciples. The mandate that was put upon the disciples and by implication all pastors is to challenge them to make disciples, not just evangelize. Paul told Peter to do the work of an evangelist, we're to present the gospel, but ultimately the role and mission of the pastor is to equip the saints, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 10, and 11, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's what discipleship is. We live in a world where the concept of discipleship since the uh, midpoint of the 20th century has often been associated with certain kinds of small group 
dynamics and certain kinds of small group methodology. You think of some campus organizations like the Navigators as well as Campus Crusade for Christ and many, many others who sort of emphasize this. But the interesting thing is the word disciple and the mandate to make disciples is hardly seen after the Gospels. You don't see Paul using the term, but the concept is there. The concept is to train people to grow and mature in the spiritual life, to be students of the Word of God. That becomes incumbent. In Matthew's structure, he says, this is who Jesus is. He, can, he has his power and authority. Therefore, that, the implication of that is that you need to be a more committed disciple. And then he goes through another set of, of miracles. And what's the implication? Is that it makes it incumbent upon each of us as believers not to take his grace and salvation for granted, but to rise to the challenge to grow to spiritual maturity. And then we have a third set that we're going to look at uh, this morning, uh, starting in verse 18. When we finish, as, as Jesus finished, or as Matthew finished recording this third set of miracles, he can't, comes back to a point where he ties those discipleship points together in sort of a bow. And Jesus says to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Who are those who are to be the laborers? Those are the disciples. So as Matthew presents these these three sets of miracles, he intersperses the application point that should be uh, coming out of this for us, and that drives us to becoming disciples, that is, to be uh, laborers in the harvest, a challenge to be disciple-makers, because when we come to the end of Matthew, his, we find that Matthew succinctly states what is also stated in the other Gospels, but he says it in a distinct way. Jesus told his disciples that you are to go and make disciples of all nations. Only Matthew puts it that way. Only Matthew records the statement that way. You are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I command you. And so the baptizing represents coming to Christ as a Savior and assuming that they would then be baptized uh, afterward, baptism simply being a ritual that uh, taught by ritual the idea that we have been placed in Christ, we've been identified with his death, burial, and resurrection so that we are uh, now saved in Christ never to lose that salvation. And as a result of that, we're to go ahead and do, carry on that disciple-making ministry. So we need to keep that in the background. So we come to this third set of miracles, emphasizing again the power and the authority of Jesus. Each of these miracles, is uh, these sections of miracles, is desi- designed to show that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Messiah who was prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. He fulfills these various predictions of the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes, he will uh, give sight to the blind, he will heal the lame, and he will give hearing to the deaf. And so this is what is presented here. Now, in this third set of miracles, there are miracles of restoration. The first three represented miracles of healing, The second three were miracles of power. These are miracles of restoration. The first miracle actually contains two miracles. It is uh, that Jesus restores health to the hemorrhaging woman and he restores life to Jairus' daughter. The second miracle is when he heals two blind men in verses 27 to 31. And then the third miracle is he casts a demon out of a man who, because of he was demon-possessed, was completely mute and could not speak, and so Jesus casts the demon out of him. So these are these three miracles that take place. Again, they take place, or at least the first one takes place, in the vicinity of the Sea of Galilee. Here's a map of the Sea of Galilee. We have studied in the past that Jesus' hometown was Nazareth, 
but when he began his public ministry, he moved his headquarters to Capernaum. Capernaum was on a major highway that extended from Damascus down along the uh, northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee and then proceeded down across uh, the Esdralon Valley and across to uh, the the, uh, Mediterranean where it headed south to, to Egypt. And so Jesus is situated and focused his ministry in one of the larger uh, towns and villages. It was a major commercial fishing village on the Sea of Galilee so that he could have a maximum impact in his ministry. Excuse me. He would be able to uh, get on a boat and go anywhere across the Sea of Galilee that he desired, and he would have access because of the major major roads and uh, have access to go throughout uh, the area of Galilee, as well as to go over to the coast of the Mediterranean. Now, here's another map of the Sea of Galilee. This is based on a series of studies that was done back in the 1980s. Those of you who have been to Israel with me in the past have gone to a place called Nof Gennesar, which is a kibbutz located right here. Here's uh, a little anchor for an anchorage. It's located near there. And back in the 1980s, there was a significant drought that occurred on the Sea of Galilee, and the water level dropped uh, several several hundred feet out from shore and exposed things that had not been exposed in, in, in centuries, if, if ever. One of the things that they uncovered was a first-century fishing boat, boat that is sometimes referred to as the Jesus boat or the disciples' boat or Josephus' boat. It's on display. It's a remarkable thing to uh, go visit and to learn about all the technology that was used to bring this out of the mud. But the another thing that happened at that same time is that they discovered the rock foundations for various harbors all around the Sea of Galilee. These harbors had long since disappeared, at least the structures that were above above the water had long since disappeared. Yet when we look at Scripture, we see Jesus is continuously taking a boat from one place on the Sea of Galilee to another place, And in several places, it's significant now that we know where those harbors were, we know where Jesus went, where there had been debate in the past as to where the exact location was. It helps us to see where he went. So down here is Gadara. The city of Gadara was located all the way down here in the lower right-hand corner. We saw him casting the demons out of the Gadarene demoniacs. And uh, actually, Gadara referred to, uh, not also to a region, but there was a major harbor that that where goods were taken to Gadara, which is where that uh, that event occurred. Jesus leaves there apparently and goes back to his hometown in Capernaum. We see another little anchor on the map there because there was a major uh, major harbor there, and that is where and when this event takes place. Matthew gives us a very short account. Mark and Luke gives us, give us a much more expanded account. And if you want to follow along in your Bibles, I would suggest this morning that you not only keep your finger in Matthew 9, but also turn to Mark 5.22 and Luke 8. You may not have enough fingers for all of that, but uh, you can give it a shot. Because we learn much more about this event from those other writers. As I said, Matthew is giving us bullet points almost in these nine different miracles. He doesn't go into all of the details that Mark and Luke go into. So we'll be looking at some of the additional information that comes from Mark, Mark and Luke. Matthew 9.18, we're told in just two verses... While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. So this is a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, we've already pointed out that Capernaum must have been a significant village because there's a centurion who lived there who donated the money for the construction of the synagogue in in Capernaum. There is another uh, 
uh, civil authority that was there who had a son that uh, was dying and went to Jesus to have him healed. And now we have the case of Jairus, who is the Jewish leader in the synagogue there whose daughter has died, and he comes to Jesus to be healed. So there's a lot of things that are going on uh, within Capernaum. Mark expands this a little bit, and Mark tells us, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue, and he names him Jairus by name, and when he saw him, that is when Jairus saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him. See, Matthew left that out, just said the disciples went with him, but there's a huge crowd that follows him, and thronged him. Luke tells us this. He says, And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Okay, let's make some observations here so we can understand what's going on here. This is the ruler of the synagogue uh, whom Mark and Luke identify by name as Jairus. For Matthew, that's not significant. His name, what's significant is the miracle that Jesus performs. He comes to Jesus, and according to uh, Luke and Mark, he falls down at Jesus' feet. Mark and Luke use a term which simply means to fall down. The verb is pipto, and it means to fall down on one's face, and it may describe someone who's bowing down before someone in authority, bowing down before some ruler, and in some cases it is synonymous with the word for worship. The word for worship is proskuneo. That's the more specific word that Matthew uses, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses that word because it particularly fits the point that he's trying to make in the gospel. And the point that he's trying to make in the gospel is what? Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. And this word proskuneo means basically to fall down. The original meaning of it in classical Greek was to kiss, but eventually it came to mean just to fall down. And in the Old Testament, it can refer to someone who simply bows down to a, a king or ruler or someone else. But by the time this word is used in the New Testament, it is used exclusively of worship. It's a term that indicates giving your, your submission to someone in authority. And it, it denotes exclusively worship that is addressed to God or to Jesus Christ. It is never used of anything related to a human being. In fact, human beings or angels are not to be worshipped according to the Scripture. Uh, not even uh, apostles or the apostle Peter was to be worshipped. So it indicates obedience to a person in authority and specifically obedience to a king. So he's, he, just by using the word proskuneo, it's putting forth the implication that Jairus recognizes that Jesus is the one who has the right to be obeyed as the messianic king presenting himself uh, to Israel. So that, just that terminology, Matthew reinforces his theme for this, for this uh, gospel. Second thing we observe is that Jairus is called a ruler of the synagogue or a leader of the synagogue. The term that Matthew uses, Archon, suggests that he is the main elder in the local synagogue. There might have been as many as seven or eight elders or uh, rulers in the synagogue. This term is used several times in the book of Acts to refer to uh, the leaders in the synagogue or in some cases uh, civic leaders. And the word that Mark uses is not archon, but archisunegogon, which would indicate a specific role within the, within the synagogue, that he was the one who arranged the worship services and gave order to the specific service. So he would be the primary leader within the synagogue. And so we see evidence that not all the religious leaders in Israel rejected Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. He recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. He's a religious leader in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he recognizes that Jesus is 
is the messianic king prophesied and promised for Israel. Now, in what he says, in Matthew 9.18, there's our word proskuneo, but in Matthew 9.18, Matthew says that Jairus just says, my daughter's just died. Now, remember, Matthew is compressing what he is saying here. He's not telling us everything about this event. He's not telling us everything that's going on. He is simply compressing this so that that we get a, a quick snapshot. In Mark, Mark uses a different idiom. Mark says the girl is at her end, at the last. He uses that word eschatos, from which we get our word eschatology or last things. She's She's at the end. Luke says she is near death at the very beginning, but Matthew says that puts says has him saying she's already dead. He's just summarizing what has happened. Uh, Matthew, as illustration of this, Matthew uses ninety words in the episode related to Jairus's daughter, and Mark uses a hundred and ninety-two words to describe the thing, same thing. So Mark's going to give us all the blow-by-blow uh, details. In the section related to the woman with the hemorrhage, uh, Mark uh, or Matthew uses 48 words, and Mark uses 154 words. So that lets you know Matthew is not concerned about giving us all the specific details. He just said, he doesn't give us the two parts where Jairus first came, comes and says she's about to die, and then the messengers come and say she's dead, and then he again tells Jesus, no, now she's dead. He just compresses that into one simple event, so there's no contradiction, there's no difficulty there uh, whatsoever in terms of understanding this. Um, so the that's the third thing we see in the passage that Mark tells us the girl's about to die. Luke says she's near death, but Matthew condenses it. The fourth thing we see here is Mark tells us that Jairus wanted Jesus to lay hands on the girl. This is also stated in Matthew. Says uh, Matthew has uh, Jairus saying, uh, come and lay your hands on her and she will live. Now, there are those who promote these so-called healing ministries today, and they always make an issue out of this methodology. But both in this instance where Jairus is asking Jesus to come and lay hands on her and the the other event with the woman with the hemorrhage that is sandwiched in between this where she comes and and touches Jesus' garment, both involve touch. But in both cases, Jesus doesn't say it's the touch that healed. It's the faith that healed. It is their trust in Jesus as the Messiah. So even though there's this emphasis on touching, that's just one of many ways, and it was not necessary. It's it's uh, not the touch that's relevant. It's the faith that is significant. A fifth thing that we observe in reading the different accounts is that Luke gets a little more personal. He says this is Jairus' only child. He brings a lot more emotion to bear. This is the, his his only child. This is his daughter. He loves her. She's and he tells us that she's twelve years of age, which would mean that she is just about to marriageable age. Thirteen, fourteen, fifteen would be marriageable age. So Luke points out these kinds of details several times. He describes the dead son of the widow of Nain as uh, uh, an only child, and he talks about others to bring us emotionally into the situation, that this isn't just some, uh, just some person, but we should understand the dynamics, the family relationship, how deeply and profoundly concerned that, that Jairus is. A sixth thing that we observe is that Luke uses a Greek imperfect tense in when he describes the event as uh, that she is, when he says she's she's about to die, it's just an imperfect tense in the Greek, but that's how it should be understood. She's beginning to die. But that's what Jairus would know. Jairus has left his house. She's beginning to die. He comes to Jesus. By the time he gets to Jesus, She's dead, even though he doesn't know it. She's died by then, and it takes a little while for the messengers to actually reach him. 
By the time they reach him, he's already initially said something to Jesus that she's about to die. And then when the messenger comes, he corrects that and says, now she has died. Now, there are a couple of things that we should observe that give us a doctrinal significance here. Jesus, first of all, is going to be touched by this woman who is ritually unclean. This is the second event. As we see the first part of this, the description of Jairus coming, there's an interruption in verse 20. Suddenly, a woman who had a blood flow for 12 years came from behind. So she had some sort of uterine problem where she was uh, perpetually bleeding. And that would mean that under the Mosaic law, she has been ritually unclean for 12 years. And she would not be permitted in the temple. She would not be permitted to worship. So this is a significant spiritual issue. It's not just an issue related to physical pain or physical malady. So she comes up. She knows who Jesus is. She trusts him. And she says to herself, Matthew understands this by virtue of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can reveal to us exactly what she was thinking. And she said, if only I may touch his garment, I can be made well. So she's, she's thinking that if I can touch him because of who he is and because of his power, I will be healed. And so she touches him, touches the hem of his garment, and Jesus immediately knows that he's been touched. He says that he's felt power that come out of him in the parallel accounts. And in verse 22, Jesus turned around. When he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. He doesn't reprimand her. He doesn't say, well, you should have asked me. He said, be happy, be joyful, because your faith has made you well. Not touching me. I want you to understand that, basically. It's your faith, not the touching of my garment, uh, that has made you well. So what we see here in this first point that we should observe is that Jesus is touched by a woman who is ritually unclean. Now, normally, that would render him ceremonially unclean. But because he is the God-man, instead of defiling him, he heals her. The power goes out from him, and she is the one who is healed and cleansed. And then the next thing that happens, after he has healed her, as we go through Matthew's uh, abridged account, when Jesus came into the ruler's house... He saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. This was typical of the time. There would be mourners. Some would be official, uh, professional mourners uh, that would come, and they would play music, and people would weep, and they would wail. Uh, Middle Easterners are quite overt in their demonstration of emotion. They're not like Western Europeans. They're not like a lot of Americans where they just keep their emotions inside and sit with their arms crossed and very still, and they don't want to get too uh, too emotional. If you go to the Middle East, they're always talking with all of their hands. If you try to stop, uh, hold their hands, you might break an arm. Uh, but they're, they're, they're very effusive with their emotions. And so when there's death, they, they, they would wail and they would weep and they would make all of this uh, overt emotion. And so Jesus observes that and he says to them, uh, make room, get out of the way. They're, they're all surrounding the house and it's very crowded there in Capernaum where the way the houses are built. And so he, he pushes them aside, asks them to move aside. And he says, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now, she is dead. He's using sleeping as a euphemism for the fact that he is about to resuscitate her, to bring her back to life, but he's not denying the fact that she is dead. We're told that she is dead several times in the Scripture, and she had physically died, and he's going to uh, demonstrate his power by restoring life to her. So he's going to do that by touching her. He goes in, he takes her hand, and he says, Talitha kum. We get that from both the Mark account and the Luke account. Talitha is Aramaic for little girl, and kum is the word meaning to rise. It's the Hebrew word for raise up or to rise up. And she comes up out of bed, and she is given life. So we see the first example where Jesus is touched by a woman who should render him ceremonially unclean, and it doesn't. Instead, she's healed. And in the second example, he touches a dead body, which should render him ceremonially or ritually unclean. 
but in reality, he transforms her and restores life to her. Now, both events demonstrate that Jesus, when Jesus comes into contact with that which would defile any of us, it doesn't defile him, but instead he solves their problem. He solves the problem of sin. It is a tremendous depiction and illustration of the principle in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. God the Father imputed or reckoned our sins, credited it to Jesus' account, but he doesn't become a sinner. He becomes guilty of our sin by imputation, but he is still perfectly righteous. It doesn't change his righteousness. It doesn't change his deity, but he bears in his own body on the tree, as Peter says, our sin, judicially, not in reality, it doesn't change his nature. Just as we see in all of these different different uh, healings, where he would he heal somebody, he's touched a dead body, he has been touched by someone who's ritually unclean, but it doesn't change him. What it does is it changes, it heals, it delivers the person who is sick, the person who is ill, the person who is who is ritually unclean. Another thing we should point out is that this woman who has had this hemorrhage problem has had it for 12 years, according to um, Matthew, which is the same length of time as the age of the young girl who is 12 years of age. Now, the authors don't make a specific point about that, but it's an interesting observation that we should make and that this has been uh, been provided. The result is that the crowd, again, is amazed at what he has done and what has taken place because it demonstrates who he is as the Messiah. Again, he is the one who has the authority and the power over illness. He is the one who has the power over death. If we go back in the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, we see that God is the one who has the power to bring life into inanimate or dead objects. And the principle that we can follow all the way through Scripture teaches us that even though we are spiritually dead when we are born, it is the power of God that makes us spiritually alive when we put our faith and trust in him. That's called regeneration. It's called being born again because we're born spiritually dead. And so as we look at the Old Testament, God is the one who brings life from inorganic matter. He is the one who gives life and breathes life into Adam, and he is the one who gives life to Eve. As we go through the Old Testament, we see that there are uh, six different women in the Old Testament that are barren. The Bible makes a big point out of the fact that they cannot give birth to children. Their wombs are, as it were, dead. But it is a miracle of God that he brings life where there's death. We have the matriarchs of of Israel. We have Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel are all the wives of the wives of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are all barren. But it is God who brings life into that dead womb. It's a picture that God is the one who can give life to those who are dead. We go move forward into the period of the judges. You have two different women at this almost the same time who are barren. One is the mother of Samson. The other is Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And in both of those instances, it is God who is going to bring life into, into that womb. I said uh, six. There are five in the Old Testament. The six is actually in the Gospels, and that's Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. She is the sixth who is barren, and it is God who brings miraculously brings life uh, into her womb. All of those are designed to teach that it is God and God alone who brings life where there is death. How does he do that? When we put our faith in Christ as Savior at that instant, God creates in us a new spirit, we are born again, we become a new creature in Christ, and that can never be taken away from us. So when we see these miracles, each of these miracles is performed not simply because Jesus wants to heal somebody, not simply because he was there and he could do it and he had compassion on those who were sick. He's teaching specific things, and the writers of Scripture are bringing that out, that he is the one who can restore uh, health, where there's illness, all illness is the result of sin, and he is the one who can restore life 
where there is death. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word this, this morning and to be reminded of the power that you have, a power that's demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ during his life as he's demonstrating uh, who he is and his credentials as the promised and prophesied Messiah. And Father, we are thankful that, that we have eternal life and that we know that he can give us eternal life. And as he is recorded as saying in the Gospel of John, he gives us life and it cannot be taken away from us, and we cannot be taken away from him. He holds us in his hand, and he will never let us go. We have an eternal security. We have the assurance of salvation because when we believe in him, he makes us alive in Christ. He, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. Our sins were imputed to him on the cross that when we believe in Christ, the righteousness of God would be found in us. His righteousness would be imputed to us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's never understood this before, that has never been sure of their salvation, that you would make this very clear this morning, for it is through your grace that we have a salvation that is dependent not upon us, but upon what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. And therefore, it's not dependent upon who we are or what we do, but it's dependent upon who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us on the cross. And we ask that you would make these things very clear to us. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together for our closing hymn, number one, uh, number 13B, rather. 13B, How Precious is the Book Divine. 13B, please stand. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that you've given us to worship you through the study of your word. We thank you for all of the opportunities that uh, we have throughout this world, from missionaries, through other prepared pastors, through seminaries, uh, all, all throughout other countries and through this country. And we pray that you will continue to provide those prepared men and provide hearers and the opportunity and the freedom to continue to study your word and to increase the growth of the study of your word throughout all corners of this land. Father, we pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.